This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to this week's excerpt from the Dear Prudence podcast. To get the full-length members-only version every week, join Slate Plus at slate.com slash prudipod. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio today is Esme. Esme Wang is a novelist and essayist. Her debut novel, The Border of Paradise, was called a best book of 2016 by NPR. She was named by Granta as one of the best of young American novelists in 2017. She lives in San Francisco and can be found at EsmeWang.com and on Twitter at EsmeWang. Esme, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Yay! Uh, you know, congratulations on being one of the best young American novelists. Congratulations on being young. Uh, yeah, that that I may still be for a couple of years at least. What and do you think? <laughs> is there a difference between being young and being a young novelist? Um, uh, when you are just young, you are uh, under a certain age. And when you are a young novelist, you are under a certain age and you have written at least one novel. Okay, that is... <laughs> Absolutely, technically correct. I cannot yes. fault you for any no, of that. No, there were so many people though who uh, that I met who were on the list, uh, and I, we did like various events. Who insisted that they were not young at basically every event that we did. Um, usually, those were people who were born in 1978. They insisted That's that so that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there were actually a lot of people on the list who were born in 1978. So I think that's why that stuck with me. Um, but yeah, uh, they insisted they were not, in fact, young. And in at which point, I would point at the cover of the new issue of Grant and say, "It says right there that you are young. You cannot tell me you are not young." This is amazing, and I feel like we're actually getting really close to figuring out what's the official cutoff for being young. Um, and I think there is one cutoff, and we'll be able to find it. Okay. Yeah, probably. And then everybody will listen to us in terms of what the answer is, right? Like, it'll just go down in history. Esme, we're on the radio. It's official. (laughs) It's official. We're talking into microphones. I have on headphones, and I'm drinking out of a, like, bottle of water that someone placed here for me. That's true. And also the iced tea that I brought myself. Also, you're so much of an expert that you have a fake name given to you. I do. I do have a fake name. Let's say that the last year you can be young is, I'm going to say 49. Okay. Yeah. yeah. 50 is um, the official cutoff. You are no longer a young person. Oh, that's really going to bum out my 50-year-old friend. Okay, 50 is the cutoff. <laughs> I, see, I don't want to make anyone sad. Life is so hard already. Like, I mean, being young is not that great anyway, you know? So. 
I, nothing's that great. Exactly. I, or everything's kind of great. One of the two. Absolutely one okay. of the two. Yeah. Esme, before we jump in, there's two things that I've started asking all of my guests, neither of which you have to answer. Um, you may recall that a couple of weeks ago I had a, a column about the tradition of birthday spankings. Um, that we discussed. And uh, by the way, I'm still getting emails from some of you guys letting me know whether or not... I cannot believe how many people are contacting you, you got about birthday spanking. I, like, there's, there's, at this point, I'm just letting it wash over me. Like, I'm not going to ask you to stop. Clearly, you guys have a lot of, like, feelings to get out. Oh, um, birthday spankings are like your over-under toilet paper. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because I don't really care if you... I've never noticed whether toilet paper was hung over or under. But a lot of people apparently did. Right, so, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when did you learn about birthday spankings? Like at the time of your column? Yeah. Okay. I had never so, heard of them before. Like me. <laughs> did did they sound weird? Um, I guess so. But it's also a thing that like Chinese culture does not really have spankings. Mm-hmm. Like at least I don't think so. Like you, you get hit in various ways, uh, which, you know, there is such a thing as corporal punishment. But I don't think like spankings. Bankings are an actual thing. And I, and I could be wrong, and maybe I'll get lots of emails or tweets or whatever um, about this subject. Yeah, take um, some of the heat off me, yeah. please. <laughs> please tweet at me about whether or not you were uh, spanked as a Chinese person. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I did not know about this. And to me, it was a very strange uh, and fascinating tradition that I learned about. But yeah. we learn new things every day, you know? Life is such a rich tapestry. It is. The other thing that I've been doing, and again, you can feel super free not to participate, um, but when Ashley Ford was on the show, mm-hmm. she talked about how much money she had made in the last year. Oh. And that was so much fun to talk about because I feel like often we don't talk about how much money we make. And then a couple people didn't want to do it, and a couple people did. Um, and then I started getting an email from somebody who was like, so when are you going to tell us how much you make? And of course, my first thought was like, well, I, I don't have to do that. And then I was like, oh. I totally can. So uh, you can feel super free to opt out. But uh, listeners of the podcast, somebody had asked me if I was going to participate, and I think I should. So I was going through uh, all of my I, – I, I, the word I just thought of was receipts. Yeah. Stubs. Yeah. Pay stubs. Uh-huh. W-2s. That's the thing yeah. I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. 1099s. Those are not the same thing as receipts. Um, and in the last year between this column – um, uh, royalties from my books, the advance from my book, um, and various speaking engagements. I think I made the most money I have ever made. And I think I made somewhere in the neighborhood of $118,000. That's very exciting and it's going to make my amount seem very piddly and small. I mean, which it th- is. this has made every other <laughs> amount of money I've ever made seem piddly and small. This is the first time in my life, I think, that I've ever made more than $100,000 well, in one year. Well, that's very exciting, though. And Congratulations. Thank you. I'm very excited about it. I actually want to clap, but I wonder, like, if that'll make the microphone do something weird. I, I think but... it might sound weird. But, yes, yeah, so, uh, <laughs> listeners, and, and I should probably double-check that. There might be something that I'm leaving out or something that I added from a previous year, but I'm pretty sure that that's that's pretty close. And this Mm -hmm. is definitely the last three years has been more money than I've ever made. So now you listeners at home can think to yourself, either I make less than her or I make more than her and feel accordingly. (laughs) What what about you? What do you got for us? Um, In in terms of how much I made last year, Mm -hmm. um, I made, I think, like around like a little bit under $35,000. Did that feel like, because you live in San Francisco. Yeah, I live in San Francisco. And did that feel like, this is enough? Did it feel like? Well, um, I am in the position where I have a partner mm-hmm. who is definitely the breadwinner in our home. Mm-hmm. So 
It was actually the largest amount of money I had made in a year since I left my full-time startup job, which was very much like you work in an open office and like there are snacks and you you know like that all kind that of stuff thing. to sort of trick you into not noticing that they don't let you go home at the end of the day yeah exactly yeah. like i i very much did that kind of job until i got really sick and then since then i've been trying to you know make money doing various things and uh, including freelancing but not limited to freelancing and so I think my goal has been for the past couple of years just to ramp back up to the amount I was making when I was doing my startup job, but that has yet to come to fruition. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of cool, though, to see like that trajectory of like, I mean, to go from not making money to somewhere in the neighborhood of $30,000 a year, like that is an increase of yeah. $300,000 a year. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or or it could be seen as like uh, the neighborhood of making nothing without having a full-time job uh, to making something on, on, uh, on with my own two hands, like with, you know, my small business and various things. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, and creative work can be really unpredictable. I mean, it is, I think yeah. part of the reason I like talking about it on the podcast, especially with other people who have creative jobs, is this sense of the amount of money I've made over the last, like, eight years, if you looked from year to year, varies wildly. Yeah, yeah. Wildly. Oh. Yeah, no, it's so I'm actually very happy that you're asking this on your podcast. This is a good question to ask. I it's think. fun. Yeah. I, I also always want people to know if somebody says no, we just don't air that part. Like I never make <laughs> someone like give a justification on the air of like, actually, Mallory, you're making me feel uncomfortable. Please stop. Yeah, no, I'm totally fine with sharing. It's cool. And I think it can be helpful sometimes to talk to different people and get different insights. There's often the sense of we can't talk about money, because what if the money hurt us and got offended? <laughs> um, all right. Money so, gets offended very easily. Yeah. Yeah. So the first letter is just a mess. It really is. And I'm oh my so gosh. glad we're starting with it because it can't possibly get harder. Actually, a bunch of the other ones are harder. They're all, <laughs> or, they're yeah. Sorry. I saved a lot of really tough ones for you. But um, I'll go ahead and read the first yes, one. Please do. Uh, and the subject is just in-laws angry about adoption. Dear Prudence, two years ago, my husband died while I was six months pregnant in a motorcycle accident. My family was far away, so I depended greatly on my in-laws when my daughter, Hannah, was born. They were wonderful, and so was my husband's best friend, James. James made sure to take care of Hannah and me. We fell in love. We kept it quiet until I got pregnant. James proposed, and we had plans to have a small courthouse wedding and for James to formally adopt Hannah. Before we had a chance to break the news to my in-laws, my sister-in-law found the adoption papers in my desk while looking for a pen. All hell broke loose. I got called a whore to my face by my mother-in-law. James was accused of being happy that my husband died so he could finally make his move. My background, my religion, my character, everything was attacked by people who I had counted as my kin. It wasn't just one outburst either. It went on for days until I stopped letting them see Hannah. Then there was nothing but cold courtesy and no apology. A friend told me that my in-laws went to see a lawyer who specialized in custody cases. James is furious, and I am beyond hurt. I don't know what to do and how to get past this. It makes me sick to think of my daughter not knowing her father or his family, but I will not let Hannah near them if they speak this poison to her. What should I do? So before we start, I had like a couple of thoughts. Just one being, I am making the assumption based on this that the question asker has not married James did, was that the sense you got? Correct. And yeah. also the yeah. adoption has not happened Correct. Yet. Okay, just checking. Um, I found it interesting that the question asker phrased it, it makes me sick to think of my daughter not knowing her father or his family because I felt like 
the in-laws are not the only avenue for Hannah to know her father, but I thought it was interesting that the question asker phrased it that way, and it gave me a little bit of insight, perhaps, into mm. what she might be thinking. Yeah, I mean, this is this is like full Nicholas Sparks situation, just in terms of drama. And I want to I I want to acknowledge first of all that there was it was so uncalled for for them to attack your character and your religion and your background and to call you those names. Like that's absolutely not acceptable. You were perfectly right to draw a line there um and to just say like it's never okay to say those things to me. I do also want to address that your strategy of getting pregnant getting engaged and starting an adoption process with James without even telling the rest of your family that you were seeing this guy. Yeah. You definitely were setting yourself up for having to make a lot of pretty big announcements um, that would be a lot for anyone to adjust to, much less grieving parents who lost their son two years ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not to say you brought this on yourself um, but this was, I think, a bad strategy that was always like, you know, there's kind of that, oh, that big dramatic moment of she found the adoption papers looking for a pen. Yeah. But like, even if she hadn't found them, if you had just said, by the way, James and I are together, we're pregnant, we're getting married and he's adopting Hannah. I think it still would have been a lot and it might have been better. And again, like you also have been grieving. You've also been going through a lot. Nobody here is like working with uh, like just I'm feeling great. I'm doing great. I'm not suffering from any trauma. Like, I understand you're all going through a lot. But that was, um, you know, understand that it was really hard for them to learn all of this. Like, yeah, it's I, a lot to I, take in. Yeah, I think the theme of grieving is just really strong for me in this question. Like, the, the in-laws are grieving. Um, the question asker is grieving. You are grieving, um, question asker. Uh, you know, and, and James, like, who was the best friend of uh, your husband, I'm sure, was going through grief, and, as well as Hannah. And just there's so many feelings here, and it, it's such a tough situation, as, as I'm sure you know. Otherwise, you would not have written in to Dear Prudence. Yeah, but so, you know, but that's in the past. Like, you can't change that now. Um, I, I think it's just something that will be helpful to bear in mind going ahead is that, like, they are adjusting and absorbing to a huge, huge shock. Um, uh, but, yeah, so I, I think you're absolutely right to lay down the limit. Um, and I think, you know, if your goal also is to hopefully keep the lines of communication open, you know, maybe continue to take some time and space away from each other. But um, to float out the idea of a meeting with some kind of grief counselor there as a mediator, like, I don't think you guys should all be getting together without some sort of professional in attendance. Yeah, I was definitely also thinking of the idea of a mediator of some kind. Mm -hmm. Even if it's just like an outside friend that everyone trusts, somebody who can kind of like pause when the conversation gets into like character assassination or name calling. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think a grief counselor would be a great option just to sort of um, keep everyone grounded and on track. But yeah, some sort of meeting where you guys can kind of talk through like, you know, here's what's been going on. Here's why we didn't want to share this with you. It's not as if like my husband died and the next day I called up his best friend and we just gleefully hopped into bed together. Like mm -hmm. it's been a long and difficult process and he's really been here for me. Um, and you don't have to apologize for falling in love. Like that's, again, that's not wrong. Um, but to to be aware of this is hard and a lot for them to absorb um, as you 
have that conversation will be helpful to you, I think. Yeah, sounds good to me. Yeah, and 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 like to I think to set the ground rules of like as painful as this may be, as hard as this may be, um, you know, you can't call me a whore, um, and you can't accuse James of being glad his best friend is dead. Like that's oh, going to need to be like oof, that yeah. needs to be like a ground baseline rule. And yeah. if you cannot meet that, um, then we can't have a conversation, um, and you can't you know, spend time with my infant daughter. That's really fair. That's really fair for you to hold to that limit. Mm -hmm. And if they can't do that, I think for you to just say, I love you. I know this is hard. I understand you're in pain. It's still not okay behavior. Um, the, like I am, when you're ready to talk and, and, and not go to those dark places, I hope you will get in touch. Um, and hopefully they'll be able to do that. And if not, then I do think you need to, you know, the fact that they went to see a custody lawyer is, that's sad, but also they don't have grounds to, like, take your daughter away from you. Right. They might have certain visitation rights depending on how much time they've spent with her um, that that you would need to uphold. But that's – again, that's pretty far down the line. That's not really something you're faced with right now. Like, no, no judge is ordering you to let uh, the grandparents see Hannah. Right. Do you feel like there's anything else that we're kind of missing or any, any element that you want to make sure no, that we address? No, it just um, – you kind of put – I don't, I don't know. When you said it was like a Nicholas Sparks thing, it does seem very cinematic. There's so much, um, yeah, so many emotions here. Yeah, yeah that's although, really. I, I will say this. I get a not infrequent number of letters. We can't always run them because they're just often so similar. But like not infrequently, somebody will be widowed at a young age and get quite close with um, the sibling of, of their their former partner. Mm -hmm. um, and they do fall in love or like the best friend like that. That happens that weirdly. Not all the time, but kind of a lot. I actually feel like it's not even weird. Like, I, I can totally see why that would happen. That person is was close to the person that you loved and, you know, you knew them before. And uh, it makes sense to me. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does. It does happen. But, yeah, if you if you do. Guys, um, just don't don't wait until you're pregnant and starting an adoption process and engaged to bring it up to your to your in-laws. Yeah, because it also seems like all of that process is being held, you know, in limbo right now as this other stuff is being sorted out. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, would you do us the kindness of reading the second letter? Dear Prudence, I have been considering stepping back into the dating world for the first time since coming out as asexual. Although sex was part of my life in the past, for the last few years, I have come to terms with the fact that I am asexual and much happier for it. My question is this. At what part of the dating process should I let the person I'm dating or interested in dating know that I am ace? I don't want to mislead anyone. To complicate matters, I only sometimes feel sex repulsed and may be open to sex occasionally with the right partner. This seems impossible to explain to someone on a casual date. Prude, how should I deal with this? In fairness, they said prudy. Please don't make oh. it sound like someone's calling me a prude. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I am okay. reading this computer screen from across the table and I have bad eyes. I'm very sorry. Um, no, I, I mean, I'm sorry. It's fine to be a prude. I just... Please leave this all in, Audrey. <laughs> Um, yeah, this is great. I, I actually have not gotten a handful of letters from people who have come to realize their own asexuality, like, in a long-term relationship. But I don't think a lot from people who are just setting out on, on a dating expedition. And I'm kind of jazzed to get to tackle it. Did you, do you have any thoughts about this one? My, my thought was maybe, like, a, a silly thought. And maybe the thought of somebody who has been in a 
monogamous relationship for the last 16 years. <laughs> but um, for me, it was very much like, is online dating like a good way to handle this? Um, or is that helpful in this situation? Actually, I don't know that they... Oh, you mean like, are you suggesting online dating? Yeah, as like a... the con... Like to me, because so many people seem to be online dating now, the concept of online dating has seemed to me to be a good way to like... Uh, put forth information that might be helpful as opposed to going on a blind date that someone set you up on and then having to kind of navigate the waters of introducing yourself in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think online dating absolutely will be and can be your friend, uh, asexual letter writer, um, as you kind of navigate the world of dating. I know that there are uh, at least several um like dating sites geared specifically towards people on the asexual aromantic spectrum and just sorry i i always forget sometimes not everyone spends most of their time on the internet not that that's the only place you can learn about <laughs> asexuality but um just for our listeners out there who might not be familiar with terms like asexual and aromantic um they are various like spectra is that the plural of spectrum um, maybe. Spectrums yeah. sounds weird. Mm -hmm. Anyways, uh, of people who have kind of varying understandings of their relationship to either sexual or romantic attraction. Um, so somebody who is both asexual and aromantic um, might be less interested in going on dates to develop a romantic relationship and just sort of more interested in getting to know people. Mm -hmm. um, somebody else might be sort of willing to occasionally engage in a romantic relationship with somebody, but it's not really for them. Somebody else might be um, sort of open to occasionally having sex with the right partner, as this letter writer says they may be, mm -hmm. um, whereas somebody else would say, I, I would rather not have sex for the rest of my life. That's that's how I prefer it. I'm comfortable and happy with that. Um, and, and a lot of other variations. So those are just some possibilities. Those are some ways a person can be in the world. Um, and I think one thing that you might find helpful is I always like to think of it not as you are obligated to disclose such and such a thing mm -hmm. about yourself by a certain date, because I don't think that's a very helpful way to think about it. But I think it is really nice to think, do I want to screen out people who would be uh, really turned off by this, really judgmental about it, mm -hmm. who would be a jerk about it. Um, like, wouldn't I rather date people who had at least, if not like a really thorough, sophisticated understanding of asexuality, who at least were like, that's cool. I could enjoy that in somebody that I was dating. I understand what that is. This is not shocking or weird to me. Mm -hmm. So uh, absolutely, I would consider literally just Google like asexual dating site, asexual dating app, and find, I don't have any that I could specifically recommend. If any asexual listeners out there have had a uh, great experience with a particular dating site or app, please let us know so that we can start recommending it to people. Um, but yeah, that might be really helpful. I think uh, screening out, we weeding out people who are going to be really like weird about it is just going to save you time and energy. Oh, totally. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So it, I, I think it's it's less about thinking of it as like I'm misleading someone, although I think it is, you know, you are also acknowledging that a lot of possibly the majority of people who are engaged in like adult dating at least assume that sex is going to be a part of uh, the endeavor um, mm -hmm. and that saying it may not be for you uh, for some people will be really surprising or jarring. Like, I don't want to live in a Pollyanna-ish world where I'm like, you, it's not misleading. Like, no one will be surprised. Um, the the other part about it's possible they might be open to occasional sex with the right partner. That's a little trickier for me to think of of how to frame because you don't say what you think of as occasional and you don't think of uh, 
like what the right partner characteristics would be. Yeah. And, and that's a little tricky to sort of um, share with somebody, I think, before you know how you feel about them. Yes. Like that part was something where I was thinking that's not necessarily something that would be like upfront in, say, an online dating profile or whatnot. Like that seems more like the kind of thing where you need to kind of get to know the person better and figure out, like, do I even want to get into this with this person? Like, am I interested enough to bring this up? Right. Yeah. So that's definitely, I think, an in-person conversation. And I think not to phrase it, because I could see a situation where you could start seeing somebody who maybe is sexual, um, but open to dating somebody asexual. And you say, by the way, I may be open to sex occasionally. It'll kind of depend in a way that they would interpret as, oh, if I like do enough of the right things, I can mm-hmm. get this person to be interested in sex, which is not what you're saying. Um, so I think to kind of, you know, feel free to be patient with yourself on that. Like, you may be open to it, but you also may not be. It, it may come up and you might think, no, I really love and care for this person, but I'm still not interested in having sex with them. Uh, and that is OK. But but yeah, it should be part of an ongoing conversation with whoever you're seeing uh, once you've gotten to know each other a little better of, do you like sex? If so, how often? How do you like to have it? How do you like to be touched? How do you like things to be referred to? Right. What do you not like? What's weird <laughs> for you? Um, Which is why like, I'm, I'm noting this part where a uh, question asker says, explain to someone on a casual date. Like, I don't know if this is like a, you know, date number one kind of thing. Right. And again, I think that's why it might be great to consider not that you can only date fellow asexuals, but it might be really delightful to date somebody else who has kind of a similar, um, I'm great without sex. It's possible I'd be open to it occasionally with the right person, but it's not at the top of my priority list, rather than someone who's like, asexuality, what? Well, when will you want to sleep with me? Like, it, it might just be more fun for you to go out with somebody who is kind of on your same page there. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, not that you are obligated only to date fellow asexuals. I think it's great to be upfront about. Um, it, that will help you uh, weed out a lot of jerk first dates. But you don't have to dive into every single specific of what it means right away. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And good luck. Dating is just hard in general. So, you know, well done. Congratulations on kind of figuring out a bit more about uh, who you are and that it feels good for you and, and that you're happy. Like, that's fabulous. And um, I think that this will be this will be delightful. And let us know, by the way, if you find a dating app that you are really into. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so back into the family issues. The subject line of this one is just, I can't be the family therapist anymore. Dear Prudence, I'm in my mid-20s and living with my family until I can get myself upright and out of the house, which is rapidly approaching. However, my parents, whose marriage has been slowly disintegrating in front of me for years, have both separately come to me in confidence, asking me not to leave just yet, to stick around for another year, even if I get a proper job. I've had to act as an intermediary for them for years and have always been fairly independent. But now that I've finally come into my own as an adult or I'm getting close to it, and I just can't do it anymore. I've expressed this frustration before, but they never fail to still confide in me. I want to be there for them. They're my parents. But leaving them feels like I'm letting them down when they've never let me down. 
and now it's potentially holding me back from even considering jobs or life on my own. What do I do? Oh, oh! I don't think your parents have never let you down. I was just thinking the exact same thing. I was thinking the exact same thing. I think your parents have profoundly let you down. Yeah, and then it was also really interesting to me because I, as I was reading this question earlier, I was thinking like, oh, maybe like um, there could be some tapering off period where you say like, oh, there, you know, maybe this amount of time, and then you know, we kind of distance. There's kind of some more distance, but here it has actually been proposed that I think it's a year long. Stick around for another year. A year is a very long yeah. time. It's you know, um, and for the express purpose of keeping their marriage together. Exactly. Ooh. Um. Yeah. I. I mean, when you say your parents have never let you down, I think that's a very kind thing to say. I think. Obviously, there are a lot of different ways that parents and children can relate to each other. Um, but for them to place the burden of the continuation of their marriage solely on you and you continuing to live at home with them, like that is a real failure. Uh, uh, that's a real like abnegation of their role as parents. Um, they are married to each other. They are not married to you. You are not a member of the marriage and you are not their marriage counselor. And it's really, really, really not okay. Like not just a little not okay. It's a lot not okay for them to say if you leave, our marriage will fall apart and that's your fault. Even if they're not saying it mainly, even if they're like, please don't go because otherwise we'll die. Um, that's a lot of pressure to put on you and it's really inappropriate. Yeah. And I was also wondering why why is there no marriage counselor or couples counseling here? Because they've got a free one living in the house. Oh, is, is do you think that's really why? I mean, I was also like trying to think maybe it's like a cultural thing. Maybe it's um, maybe there's maybe there's like a financial reason or something like that. But maybe it's exactly what you just said. You have they have a free uh, couples counselor living there. And there can sometimes be this sort of people will often be really, really willing to ask a lot of family and friends in terms of um, emotional support. Mm -hmm. and, and not just like the sort of usual, like, I'm in a bad place and I need this. Emotional labor, yeah, really. Yeah, in a sort of sense of like, uh, if I actually went to a counselor about this, that would be embarrassing. That would be a sign that I have a problem. Mm -hmm. People would look down on that. But I can indefinitely, as often as I want, call upon you to act as a free version of this emotional labor. Um, and that's fine. And you really can't say no to that. Uh, because that's just what friends and family are for. And yeah. um, I think that's a bad way to think about things like therapy and marriage counseling. So, dear, dear letter writer, um, I think you have a couple of things that you get to do now. One of which is continue looking for that job. Um, really focus on, like, building up your resume and applying for work and finding out what kind of uh, jobs you are qualified for and, you know, just working in general as hard as you can to get that job because that's going to be really important for you um, mm. as a young adult. And the other one is, um, you know, figure out for yourself, if you don't want to be your parents' marriage counselor for the rest of your life, what steps are you going to take right now to resign from that job? Because you're looking for another full-time job. Yeah. And, and you already have one, and you're not getting paid. <laughs> and is part of that, those steps, is part of those steps, um, you know, talking to them about possibly finding a marriage counselor? Um, or do you not want to involve yourself in that Oh, procedure? yeah. I mean, I think, I think, again, this may not be financially feasible for you right now, but, man, if you can afford even two or three sessions to get a therapist for yourself— and to say, hey, here's my goal, therapist. Two years from now, I would like to have a job 
be living on my own and no longer be my parents' primary form of marital counseling. Ah, A++. Can you help me achieve those goals? And your therapist uh, hopefully will say, yes, those are all achievable goals. None of those involve, you know, moving to Venus and speaking Mm -hmm. butterfly. Uh, (laughs) Like, you can do all those things and I can help you figure out how. But um, you're going to have to do them yourself and your parents are going to resist it and they're going to resist it hard and you're going to feel really guilty. Mm -hmm. Like, I just need to prepare you right now because everything that you are about to do that is in fact necessary and healthy and not selfish and normal is going to feel cruel, self-centered, ungrateful, and totally shocking. Mm -hmm. And and that's going to be hard for you to overcome, but it's actually, it's not at all. Yeah. You need to, you need to do what's right for you. So number, number one, I think you get to say separately to your parents. Um, and, and again, I don't know what your financial situation is. I don't know if you're in a position where if you got a job next week, you'd be able to find a living situation in a month. Um, so, I, I, you know, depending on where you're at financially, you may actually need close to a year to get a place of your own. Um, so I don't want to say, like, I'm not going to stick around another year. I don't know what that looks like. But um, you say that they never fail to confide in you. Um, you you get to stop being their confidant and to say, Mom and Dad, I love you. I'm so sorry that your marriage is so hard. As your child, I am uniquely unqualified mm-hmm. to help you with your marriage. Mm-hmm. I hope very much that you guys will go see a marriage counselor But I need you to know that from now on, I'm no longer available to act as your marriage counselor. And they are not going to like that Mm -mm. because you have been willing to do that, it sounds like, for a big portion of your adult life. And they might throw a tantrum and they might try to make you feel guilty. And you might feel tempted to step back into that role because of that guilt. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think it'll really help you to have a counselor to sort of help you prepare some talking points. Um, but you don't have to defend it. You don't have to explain it. You don't have to justify it. You get to repeat the limit. So all you get to say is just, I'm not able to do this anymore. You're going to have to talk to someone else. And you can say that in as many times as you need to, in as loving a tone you can. Um, but hold fast to it. And if you need to, like, leave the room. Like, say, Mom and Dad, I love you. I've made myself clear. I'm going to go. Um or just mom and dad, you know how I feel about this. I can't do this for you. Please call a therapist. Uh, I'm going to go for a run or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and hold that limit. And it's going to be hard to hold that limit at live at home. So I urge you to continue looking for that job and get a place of your own. But until they don't have a free therapist in you, there's not much of an incentive for them to look for one themselves. Or, shit, to get divorced. Maybe they should get fucking divorced. Yes. Seriously. Maybe that is the right answer here. They But whatever it is, they're going to need to figure it out without you. Like, people figure out whether or not their marriage is is salvageable without going to their adult children. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is is going to be hard, I feel, for this letter writer because um, they are going to have to do a total 180, and they're going to have to hold firm to a boundary that their parents have convinced them is totally not even, like, like non-existent, unnecessary. Um, And it just breaks my heart that this letter writer thinks their parents have never let them down. Yeah. When like, yeah. and again, I don't mean that they're like cruel monsters who wake up every day and think like, "Ooh, how can we like stultify the letter writer's growth?" I just mean they, they are not helping you grow. But I think you can do it, letter writer. Like you've already been focusing on achieving some goals of like getting an independent life set up, and it sounds like you're already making progress, even though your parents have really been throwing roadblocks in your way. And 
I have a lot of faith in your ability to do this. I do too. Yeah. All right. So uh, continuing with the theme of children and what they do or do not owe their parents. This one, this one, ooh, okay. Dear Prudence, I have a difficult relationship with my father. He is crude and verbally abusive, and though we never see eye to eye, he wishes to visit me at college frequently. My fear is, if I say I do not want to see him during the school year, he may take out his anger on my mother. Inevitably, I will have to tell him that I do not want him in my life anymore as I enter adulthood, but I fear this, as he can be volatile when upset and is incapable of listening to others. It's clear he cares about me, though you would not guess that from our interactions. How can I distance myself from him while ensuring nobody gets hurt? This one was hard. This one was one of the hardest, I feel like, from from the questions you sent me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know you were spending a lot of time kind of pouring over them. Did anything in particular come up for you with this one? Um, part of... Uh, Part of what I was wondering, well, I, I was wondering a lot of things, but um, I was wondering how much the question asker or the letter writer was worried about their mother's safety mm-hmm. um, as part of this. Um, it's not incredibly detailed here. Uh, there's, there's, um, you know, crude and verbally abusive and then taking out anger on uh, the mother, yeah. and that, which brings up a lot of questions of, you know, how you know, how extensive is this? How worried is the letter writer about uh, their mother um, and the consequences of these potential actions? Um, it sounds like this has probably been going on all all the letter writer's life. Um, so those were some of the things I was thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's absolutely, I think the first thing to address is, um, you know, if you are concerned for your mother's safety, um, you can call the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which is something that I plug here fairly often on the show. And you can call uh, 1-800-799-SAFE. Um, you can also uh, find their website. Um, there's various ways to get in touch with them, to find different resources in your area, to speak to somebody confidentially about different options that you may have. Um, but yeah, if you're concerned about your mother's physical safety or you want to make sure that she knows that she has resources, if she should ever consider leaving your father, that is a great place to start. Um, yes. I think it's great. also important to bear in mind that, you know, people will often, when when they have an abusive parent, they'll think of, you know, they're they're not acting in like a perfect world, right? Like you make a series of trade-offs and all your decisions are bad. So there's this sense of... Um, you are aware that individuating yourself from your father is important and that as an adult, you don't want to be in contact with him. You're also aware that if you remove that avenue for him, more of the burden is going to fall on your mom. And that doesn't mean that your father's abuse is your fault or that it's your responsibility or your job to manage him. But it also is like this is your mother. Mm-hmm. And it's really painful to think, you know, my moving away from him um, may lead to uh, in, increased danger for her. Mm-hmm. And that's really painful. And I don't want to say, so therefore keep him in your life a limited amount, but I think to figure out what are ways in which you can keep in touch with your mother that aren't through your father. Mm-hmm. Um, if if there's a, a, a another relative that you know she's in touch with that you can kind of speak 
to your mother through her. Um, if there's some sort of contact information, you can um, give your mother that's sort of uh, neutral. Like, like I don't know if you have a burner phone, but like a way for you guys to occasionally stay in touch without your father being involved. Yeah. Um, and I was also wondering whether the letter writer had had any conversation with their mother about um, potentially uh, distancing themselves from the father, um, if that had come up before, right. or if this would be completely out of the blue for the mother as well. Right, yeah, and that I just don't know, because sometimes there can be a sense of, yes, that makes sense. Sometimes there can be a sense of, uh, you know, uh, panic at the thought of, of, of losing an ally. Um, I, I, I just don't know. Yeah, but, we, um, we can't know from this. To yeah. bear in mind two things. One is, one is to help your mother whenever possible, but I think the limit you have to draw for yourself is you cannot spend your life absorbing your father's abuse to protect your mother. Exactly. You can let her know you're there for her, that you love her and support her, um, that if she ever wants to leave him, you want to help in any way that you can, but not at the expense of your own safety and development. So for you to say, I need to start taking steps to reducing my father's contact with me in my life with the goal of eventually not being in, con in contact with him at all, that is a good goal, and that should be your priority. Mm -hmm. um, and, to, and to just remember, you can't save your mother by sacrificing yourself, um, as hard as that is, I think, to remember. Um, but yeah, so he wants to visit you at college a lot, um, and you want to say no to that. And so I want to think through a couple of different options that, again, depend on how how your relationship with your father is. One of those could absolutely be the sort of helpful fiction of, Dad, I'm so busy. It's almost finals. Um, and, and maybe setting up less frequent visits that are more about just getting lunch together somewhere and then, you know, oh, I've really got to get back to my studies. The, the nice thing about college is it's a really effective cover for, mm -hmm. like, responsibility, working hard, like, making it clear, oh, I would love to be with you, but I've just got all these important, important things that are going to yeah. help me in my future. And if, if you're meeting to be able to set uh, limits to the meetings, like, yes, let's meet at this cafe, and then in an hour I need to go because I have a meeting with my TA or something yep, like yep. that. Um, and, and to think through, like, ways that you can meet in public, um, not letting him into your home whenever possible. Um, I think that will all be helpful in terms of limiting your guys' interaction. Um, it's also okay to say just, no, Dad, I can't make that work. Um, again, I don't know how financially dependent you are upon your father. I don't know if he would threaten to cut off funding for your education if you were to limit your visit. So uh, I want to—I want you to bear your own safety and ability to get an education first and foremost at the front of your mind. But to whatever extent you can, um, you know, use the cover of being really busy with school. Uh, if if your father is not threatening you by taking away money, um, if you do feel physically safe saying no, then I think you can absolutely just say, no, I can't make that. Um, and, and if you're, you know, work as hard as you can at school, like speak to a guidance counselor, speak to the financial aid office, um, you know, ask, ask for help from people you trust in terms of how do I set up my life so that by the time I graduate, um, I'm not relying on my father for anything. Um, if I want to cut contact, there's no way he can like come after me, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and harm my future financially. And, and to step back to the previous question, this might also be a good opportunity to find like a counselor or a therapist or somebody like that who can help you with the goal of, I would like to eventually, you know, cut off contact or really distance myself from my father. Here are my concerns. 
um, can can how can we make this happen or how can we allow this to happen? Yeah, I think too the the, the most important principle to bear in mind um, are two things. One is you're you're afraid that someday you know you're going to have to say that you don't want him in your life anymore, um, but you're afraid because he can get volatile and he's incapable of listening to others, and and. We'll often have letters that are about how do I tell someone who is generally well-intentioned um, that they did something that hurts me? And that's not what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think just one thing that's really important um, to bear in mind is you do not have to convince someone who is abusing you that abuse is wrong. Yeah. Um, you do not have to give a long list of reasons why you don't want them in your life anymore. Um, what they are doing is self-evidently wrong. Mm-hmm. And they know it is wrong. Everyone knows that it's wrong. So... If someday you decide you don't want your father in your life anymore and you don't want to sit him down and explain why, you do not owe him an explanation. Mm-hmm. Abuse is wrong, and he knows that, full stop. Mm-hmm. Um, so so please free yourself of the expectation that, well, in order to get him out of my life, at some point I'm going to have to say, Dad, we can't be in contact anymore because you routinely scream at me for hours, and that's not okay. Like, it's just not okay, and you can just cut contact. And the other one is, it's clear he cares about me, although you wouldn't guess that from our interactions. And I just also, I, I know it's really hard when it's your dad to sort of free yourself of any sort of sense of guilt or obligation or responsibility. Um, but I just also want to say, like, it doesn't matter if he cares about you. Because the question is not, does he love you? The question is, can he love you without harming you? Yes. And whether he cares about you or not, I, I don't want to say it doesn't matter. Like, obviously, it matters profoundly to you, and I don't doubt that that's true. Um, but if somebody's not capable of expressing love safely, then it doesn't matter if they love you or not because they can't be – they can't treat you like a human being who deserves respect. And so whether or not he loves you almost isn't the issue. Obviously, it matters to you personally, but in terms of cutting off contact, not important. Not the issue. Doesn't doesn't matter. Um so just I hope that that is something that you can let go of. Um, but, yeah, that's, it's a hard needle to thread, like distancing yourself gradually, trying to make sure that your mom is safe and, and at least knows that she has options, um, wishing you did not have to fear some sort of volatile reprisal if you do try to cut or minimize contact. That's a lot to go through, and I hope you are talking about this with friends, if you trust, if you have people who are close to you that you trust, uh, a therapist, a guidance counselor on campus, a, a professor that you feel close to, somebody, so that it's not just you trying to navigate your relationship with your dad alone. All right, let's go for something a little bit lighter, which is just good old-fashioned Wedding yelling. Yes, wedding yelling. Guys, the wedding yelling, it's, it sounds like every, I'm sure people have nice weddings. I never hear from them. <laughs> I never hear from those people. Dear Prudence, I had a very nice wedding. Um, thoughts? Yeah. Hey, how was your wedding? Was your wedding nice? I had a very nice wedding, actually. I'm so glad. Yeah. Did anyone yell at you? No, no one yelled at me. I felt very loved. It was a great day. Oh. That's. Fa- I wish that was the letter. <laughs> but then so I much. wouldn't have a question, you know? <laughs> Damn it. Yeah, no, fair enough. All right, so the subject line of this one is, just a maid of honor, not the bride. Dear Prudence, several months ago, my younger sister was married, and I served as her maid of honor. She made a lot of questionable, in my opinion, choices for her day, but it was her day, and I did my part to support her and carry out her wishes. Our family did not appreciate, read, hated a lot of her choices and held me responsible for them. Basically, nobody is talking to me now. 
And if they do, it's only to make jabs about various things from her wedding. I have tried patiently and politely to accept their criticisms, apologize on her behalf, but I am reaching my breaking point. For example, my sister did not want and did not have a receiving line, which meant a lot of family members got no one-on-one time with the bride and groom. But I have been reprimanded for it. Think, how dare you not have a receiving line? Repeatedly for this. For what it's worth, I warned my sister the receiving line would be a hiccup with our family. Prudence, I'm running out of ways to politely but firmly remind them it wasn't my wedding. It doesn't help that everyone has only glowing things to say about the newly married couple, their beautiful day, and the wonderful bride. How did I become the bad guy? Help. So I was so confounded by this question uh, the first time I read it. And so I I tried to come up with a couple of different hypotheses. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe... Uh, this family that is uh, so critical of how the wedding went down, maybe they automatically assume that the maid of honor is the one who needs to keep things in line, no matter what. It's just the job of the maid of honor mm-hmm. to make sure there's a receiving line, to make sure everything, you know, whatever. The other uh, hypothesis I had was maybe this uh, letter writer uh, as, am I correct in it was the older sister? I believe so, Maybe yes. Maybe the maid of honor slash older sister is known for uh, keeping the younger sister in line in other oh, aspects Oh, yeah. Maybe the younger life. sister gets away with a lot. Yeah. And maybe this is like the older sister role in this family to make sure uh, the younger sister doesn't do things like not have a receiving line. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, as a younger sister, we do sometimes get away with shit that our older (laughs) sisters did not have to. And I imagine it can sometimes get frustrating. Yeah, uh, maid of honor, older sister, uh, I want to give you the gift of closing your inbox. Um, You are no longer accepting criticism about this event. You are now closed to inquiries. Yeah, yeah, no more patiently and politely accepting their criticisms, no No. more apologizing on her behalf, all of this. Um, Yeah. Yeah, you just get to be done. You get to just, you know... It's bananas that there are family members who are no longer talking to you because they are mad about your sister's <laughs> wedding. Um, I guess just think of it as like a gift because they are clearly unreasonable bananas people who are always going to hold you to ridiculous standards. So, uh, frankly, it sounds like not talking to them is a real fucking treat. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, you just get to say, actually, uh, I'm no longer accepting criticism about that day. If you have an issue with how the wedding went down, please speak to Paulette or whatever your sister's name is. Um, and <laughs> or speak it into a can and throw the can down a well. Yeah. Like, no, you don't have to be polite and firm. You don't have to be polite at all. Uh, you just get to say, I don't know what to tell you. It's not my wedding. Uh, I'm no longer accepting criticism about the event. Please feel free to yell at my sister if you're mad or shut the hell up. I mean, you're probably not going to say shut the hell up to your family members, but just, yeah, just don't have that conversation. Um, just be done. Just like, you know what? I, 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 the wedding is over. There is nothing I can do. This was not my decision. We're done having this conversation. If you need to talk about this wedding, um, go talk to my sister or let it go. Uh, I gently invite you to let this go because you're fine. Like, yeah. most people don't get to spend Seriously. a lot of one-on-one time with the bride and groom at their wedding. You're going to get to see them again later. Mm-hmm. Everyone's still alive. You can call her right now if you would like to get one-on-one time with the bride. She's still <laughs> bridally wed to her groom. She's still the bride. Yeah. Yeah. The wonderful bride. Yeah. Yeah. No, just just resign. Resign from being the scapegoat. Um, 
hang up the phone, walk away from the conversation. Uh, this is not up for discussion. You are done. Um, and I'm, also your family sounds like jerks. <laughs> I'm picturing this person creating a template, a template email that they just send out to anybody who sends any yeah. more of these emails. Yeah. Thank you so much for your input. Uh, I am no longer accepting criticism about this event. Uh, please, you know, try again with like alternate avenues for your dumb opinion. <laughs> Um, Sincerely yours. You know, modify that a little bit. Be a little nicer when you say it. But yeah, just be done. You're done. This is nonsense. They are being nonsensical. Um, what the hell is a receiving line anyways? Is this like birthday spankings where this is like everybody <laughs> knows about but me and it's just super normal? I think – anyway, I'm not even going to guess. I have a guess, but it's just, you know, uh, what you would think a receiving line would be. Um I, I think it's like when the bride and groom stand, I could be totally wrong and I'm sorry if I am, um, the bride and groom just stands somewhere and then like there's a line that goes past so that you can just kind of shake hands, hug, whatever, the bride and the groom. Okay, I've seen past. that in like Jane Austen movies. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what that is. Maybe, maybe. I could okay. be wrong. Yeah. I didn't have one. I mean, that sounds nice, but. Probably you won't die if you don't get one. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. That does not sound like an unmissable event. Um, <laughs> sorry, guys. That's very weird. I don't know. I've been to five weddings. I should always preface this with like, I've been to basically no weddings. Yeah. I I personally, uh, I, I feel like I want to resign from going to any more weddings, but that's just my We have advised opinion. people to resign a lot this episode. <laughs> yeah. We have told people to resign from being a marriage counselor, to resign from being... <laughs> the resignation episode. Yeah. The I resignation mean, episode. It is great to go to weddings, especially if people you are very, very close to. And sometimes they are borderline unmissable unless you are willing to, like, tank a relationship. But a lot of the time, they're super optional. Yeah, no, I, I love... It's not so much... Um, like, I, I often... Like love the people I, I do always love the people whose weddings I'm invited to and go to. It's just like such especially as a chronically ill person, it's such a feat of stamina mm -hmm. to get through a wedding and it, it's just very tough on me physically. Yeah. And so that's that's part of the reason that I sometimes want to resign from weddings. But please continue to invite me to your weddings. Yes. Um, and then you can you continue feel. to gracefully yeah. <laughs> uh, RSVP. I cannot make it, but I love you very much and I hope we can see each other after you get married. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and just I think another great piece of advice is only know fantastic people. Yeah, Stop knowing terrible people with jerk weddings, guys. <laughs> knock it off. Just cut them out of your life. Esme, we did it. We answered all the questions. We answered all the questions. We fixed everybody's lives. Yay. Thank you so much for coming all the way over to the East Bay and hanging out in the studio with me. It was so fun having somebody in the room. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure giving advice. And uh, yeah, you have a tough job. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence, even though you didn't have to. Our producer is Audrey Dilling, and our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. If you like this show, please go to Apple Podcasts and write us a review. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute, tops.
is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.